And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans, chapter 15. And this morning and next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7, which are about God's glory through our unity. God's glory through our unity. We'll see that Paul calls us to unity in the body of Christ. He actually prays for our unity in the body of Christ in these verses. But not as an end in itself. Really as a means to an end. A means to the end of the glory of God. Because when you think about it, when sinners like us, who are different from each other in many ways and have different opinions and convictions on a variety of matters in life, when we seek to please not ourselves, but each other for each other's good, when we seek to build each other up instead of tearing each other down, and when we seek to live in harmony with one another and to welcome one another, when that happens, God is glorified. God is honored and praised and magnified. God's glory is seen and displayed through our unity as the body of Christ. And of course, that's what we want more of here at CRPC. We want to grow in our unity as a body so that we can bring glory to God more and more together. And I trust God will do that work in us by his grace, even as we listen to his word together this morning. So let me pray for us as we get ready to hear his word, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our unity in Christ, for our unity around the gospel of Christ. Thank you for our common faith in Christ and our union with him and our union with each other. But we acknowledge that we are, each one of us, prone to please ourselves, We are prone to fracture from each other. We don't always handle our disagreements well. We don't always welcome each other well. And so we need this passage. We need its truths to sink in to our hearts and minds. So would you enable us to listen well to your word and to listen with a humble spirit and a teachable spirit And please grow and strengthen our unity as a body for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 15, reading verses one through seven, though our focus this morning is gonna be on verses one through four. These are God's words given to us through the apostle Paul. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You can see where we're going over the next two weeks in the sermon notes in the bulletin. First, we'll look at what Paul says in verses one through three about pleasing neighbor, not self, like Christ. And then at what he says about the purpose of the Old Testament in verse four sort of seems like an odd placement for what he says, but we'll see the connection this morning. That'll take us through the end of today. Then next week, you'll see at the bottom, we'll look at his prayer for unity in verses five and six. And finally, the final exhortation he gives in verse seven. And kids, don't forget the key words for kids at the top of the page there. You can see them. You can listen for those words as you listen to the sermon. So let's look first at what Paul says about pleasing neighbor, not self, like Christ. He says there in verse one, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And let's just remember briefly what Paul means by the strong and the weak here. The strong are the strong in faith, and by the grace of God, they have faith, they believe rightly, that they have the freedom to eat all foods now that Christ has come and declared all foods clean. They don't have to follow the Old Testament food laws anymore because of the coming of the Messiah and because of his declaration that all foods are clean now. And the strong in faith, they understand this. And so they can eat all foods with a clear conscience. The weak in faith, however, haven't yet connected the dots between the coming of Christ and the abrogation of those food laws. So they still followed the food laws because their conscience was telling them that that was the right thing to do. Even though their conscience wasn't correct on this issue, it wasn't fully informed on this issue. And that's why Paul refers here to the failings of the weak. They failed to grasp the implications of the coming of Christ for the observance of the food laws. But the strong in faith, Paul says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, of their brothers and sisters in Christ who are weak in faith on this particular issue. They're not to abuse the weak. They're not to belittle the weak. They're to bear with the weak as their brothers and sisters. Not just to put up with them or to merely tolerate them, but to really love them. Like in Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bearing with one another in love. Love motivating the bearing with. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The strong in faith are to bear with the failings of the weak. They have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, Paul says. This isn't something they may do, this is something they must do. And they're not to please themselves, we see also here. 
namely by eating whatever they want, even if it's in front of a brother or sister who is weak in faith. They're not to please themselves in that way. Instead, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We're to please our neighbor in Christ not ourselves, or to please our neighbor for his good to build him up, not ourselves for our good to build ourselves up. We should aim for neighbor edification, not self-gratification in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Two things by way of application here. First of all, if we are the one who is strong in faith in a given situation... We should use our strength for the other person's good to build them up. We shouldn't use our strength for our own advantage to build ourselves up while we tear the other person down. That is our natural sinful tendency to use our strength or our knowledge, as in this case, for our own benefit. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to do the opposite, aren't we? We have an obligation to bear with the other person in love and to please them for their good in Christ and to build them up in their faith in Christ and their understanding of God's word. We shouldn't be like a proud professor who builds himself up by tearing his students down, pleasing himself by displaying his superior knowledge in the classroom. No, we should be like a humble professor who uses his knowledge to build his students up and to help them to learn and grow and make progress. We should bear with our brother or sister in Christ. We should use our God-given strength to please them for their good and to build them up. Second thing, just a recommendation for a profitable way to use the time on the way to church. When you're in the car on the way to church on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, you could take some time to talk about and also pray about how you can do good to your fellow church members or to visitors and how you can build them up. You could perhaps just ask, what are some ways we can please our fellow church members for their good this morning? What are some ways we can please our fellow church members for their good this evening? What are some ways we can build them up? What are some ways we can encourage them in their faith in Christ? Time spent in the car on the way to church, talking about that, praying about that together would be time well spent and would prepare you to be a humble blessing to those around you. Sometimes it can be tempting for all of us to just come to church, to consume, and then to go home without really interacting meaningfully with the rest of the body. Uh, But a little preparation to make the most of our time together here would help all of us to please each other for each other's good and to build one another up 
in Christ. But why should we do this? Why should we seek to please our neighbor, not ourselves? Well, Paul tells us, because our Savior did this. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Meaning the reproaches of those who reproached God fell on Christ. Because Christ came not to do his own will, but the will of God, the will of the Father. Jesus said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or as we read in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ came into the world not to be served, but to serve. Christ came into the world not to please himself, but to sacrifice himself for us. How should we respond to that? Well, first, we should follow Christ. That's Paul's point here, isn't it? We should follow Christ. He's saying we should please our neighbor, not ourselves, because Christ did not please himself. So we should respond to that by following Christ in our lives. We shouldn't follow our own desires when they are selfish. We shouldn't follow the course of this world, which really runs in the opposite direction of all this. We should follow in the footsteps of our Savior. 1 Peter 2, 21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So that you might follow in his steps. Just like I'm sure you've seen a a long row of baby ducklings following in the footsteps of their mother, so we should follow in the footsteps of our Savior. He did not please himself, so we should not please ourselves. He gave himself for others in love, so we should give ourselves for others in love. He bore the reproaches of the wicked, so we should bear the reproaches of the wicked. He did not his own will, but the will of the Father. We should do not our own will, but the will of the Father. We should walk in his steps, in his strength. We can do all these things through him who strengthens us. So we should follow Christ. We should respond to this by following Christ. We should also respond to this by worshiping Christ. By worshiping Christ. Worshiping him, thanking him for his grace and mercy and and for his love toward us. Because if he had pleased himself, we wouldn't be saved. We would still be in our sins, wouldn't we? But he didn't please himself. He sacrificed himself. And our response should be to worship him and and give thanks to him for what he's done. That's what we did earlier when we sang together. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. It's when we get a clear sight of the mercy of Christ that our hearts are moved to worship. One of the old Puritan prayers in the Valley of Vision puts it this way, it's a bit lengthy, just listen. 
Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Christ was stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. Athirst, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Christ was made a shame, that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness, that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept, that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. Groaned, that I might have endless song. Endured all pain, that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorny crown, that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head, that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach, that I might receive welcome. Closed his eyes in death, that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. Expired, that I might forever live. Christ did not please himself. He gave himself for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Let's worship him and give thanks to him for what he's done for us. So that's the exhortation in verses one through three. Please your neighbor, not yourself, like Christ. And then Paul gives us a little aside in the next verse on the purpose of the Old Testament. Let's look at that now under our second main point, the purpose of the Old Testament. Look at verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I wonder if you noticed the connection there. I didn't notice it till I read it in a commentary. He's just said, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now he's reminding us why it matters what is written. As it is written, well, why, why does that matter to us today? Why does it matter what is written? It matters because whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction in the New Testament era. Whatever was written B.C. was written for the A.D. people of God. Of course, it was written also for the people of God back then, but the point is that it was also written for us, the people of God after the coming of the Messiah. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This is like what Paul said earlier in the letter in chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. That is why Abraham's faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them, meaning the Israelites, as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed 
lest he fall. Or one more, the well-known verses at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Sacred writings are referring to the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Sometimes the human authors knew that what they were writing was not only for their generation but for future generations. But, of course, always the divine author knew exactly what we would need for our instruction. And so as men spoke and wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21, God addressed not only the original recipients but also the modern recipients. He made sure that what was written in former days under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would be for our instruction too, would be profitable for us as well to teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness, to make us complete and equipped for every good work. So one takeaway for us is to make sure we read the Old Testament because it was written for us. When you read the Old Testament, you're not reading someone else's mail. You're reading your own mail. Your name is at the top. Your address is on the outside of the envelope because God wrote it for your instruction, for the instruction of all of his people. And so we should, of course, read the Old Testament. Like Bill was saying earlier, we should expose our minds and hearts every day to its life-giving light. One way to do that, I think, is to use a Bible reading plan. I'm sure many of you have done that or are doing that uh, as a way to get Scripture into your minds and hearts. Uh, I would recommend the Bible reading plan that Robert Murray McChain created some years ago. We have free copies of it at the Ministries Board out in the Narthex. It'll get you into the Old Testament every day of the year as well as the New Testament. It's a good way to read what was written in former days for your instruction. This is one of the reasons why we read the Old Testament in our worship services. Like we're reading through Deuteronomy a chapter at a time during our morning service or Hosea a chapter at a time during our evening service right now. It's not just an interesting historical exercise. It's not just delving into a piece of ancient literature together and isn't that, isn't that interesting. No, we are reading and listening to the very words of God. Written long ago, yes, but written for us today. As really and truly as if the ink was still drying on the page while we are reading it. This is why we preach the Old Testament in our sermons. Why we sing the Old Testament in our psalms. Because whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. But the Old Testament wasn't just written to instruct us. It was also written to encourage us and give us hope. That's what Paul talks about in verse 4. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 
The Old Testament instructs us, but it also enables us to endure in the Christian life. And it also encourages us in the Christian life. And it also gives us hope in the Christian life. The story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 reminds us of the wisdom of God and the goodness of God. The account of the fall in Genesis 3 teaches us about sin, but it doesn't leave us in our sin. It gives the promise of a redeemer who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. The record of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives and their children encourages us and gives us hope because we see all their faults and their failings. And yet we also see the faithfulness of God in the midst of their faults and failings. Doesn't that encourage us? We read about the Israelites, as we did this morning, in Egypt or in the wilderness or in the promised land, and it helps us to endure through our journey in the wilderness of this world on our way to heaven. We encounter the Psalms. We read them. We meditate on them. We pray through them. We sing them. And they fill us with hope. Like Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The Proverbs certainly instruct us about wisdom. They also encourage us in the way of wisdom. The prophets warn us about failing to endure in faith, and they hold out hope through repentance and trusting in God's gracious faithfulness. Even the genealogies of the Old Testament encourage us and give us hope as they remind us that God knows his people by name. And of course, all of the Old Testament in one way or another points us to Jesus Christ. Christ is promised and prefigured Christ is foretold and foreshadowed. And as we look to Christ in the Old Testament, we are able to endure. And he encourages us in our faith and fills us with the hope of glory. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Two more thoughts as we draw to a close this morning. And again, we'll return to the remaining verses, five through seven, next Sunday morning, Lord willing. Two more things. First of all, if you are not familiar with the Bible, maybe less familiar with the Bible, let me say just a few words that may help you. The Bible is a book, of course. I see people around you holding it in their laps. But it's actually a collection of books, if you didn't know this. 66 books total. 39 in what we call the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. The Old Testament is before Christ and points ahead to Christ. The New Testament is after Christ and and tells us about his life and death and resurrection and all the implications of who he is and what he's done for our lives today. And all these books were written by people, various people over a long span of time. But in many places, these books claim to be not the words of man, but the words of God, the words of the one true and living God. And as Christians, we believe that's true. In fact, that's why the Bible can give us hope, like we've been talking about, because the words of man can't give us hope. You've heard inspiring speeches and read inspiring literature, no doubt, in the past, 
Maybe the words of man can give us hope temporarily, but we need more than temporary hope. We need eternal hope. We need hope that is lasting. And the words of man cannot give us that. But the words of God can. And the Bible is the word of God. And it gives us hope by telling us the good news of the gospel, which is that though we all deserve to be punished forever because of our sins against God, God has made a way for us to be saved from our sins. Not through our own efforts, not through religious ritual, not through religious practices, but through simple faith in Jesus Christ, through trusting in Jesus Christ to save us on the basis of what he has done, on the basis of his perfect life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection. Through Jesus, you can have salvation from your sin. You can have eternal life. You can have hope. Not a temporary hope, but an eternal hope, the hope of glory. If you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, the only Savior of sinners. Jesus is what the Bible is all about. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope in Jesus, ultimately. In Jesus and because of Jesus. So put your trust in Jesus this morning. I encourage you. And talk to me afterwards if you have questions, certainly. Second, and finally, to bring the two halves of the sermon together here, God, by his word, empowers us for what he calls us to by his word. God, by his word, empowers us for what he calls us to by his word. He calls us to bear with each other. That's not easy. He calls us not to please ourselves, but to please each other for each other's good. That's also not easy. He calls us to build each other up. He calls us to follow in the footsteps of our Savior who came not to please himself, but to sacrifice himself. But we all know we cannot do that in our own strength. We don't have it in us to do that, which he calls us to. But God empowers us to do it by his word, by his spirit working in us by his word, his spirit applying his word to our hearts. And so he empowers us to do what he calls us to do. He empowers us by his word to do what he calls us to do by his word. He wrote it to instruct us. He wrote it to enable us to endure in this life. He wrote it to encourage us. He wrote it to give us hope. So as we draw to a close, let's be freshly reminded and encouraged and challenged, if need be, to feed our souls every day with the food God has given us so kindly, so graciously. Let's not skip a meal. Let's not starve ourselves spiritually. Let's feed ourselves. Let's feast ourselves on the bread of heaven that God has provided for us. For as our Savior has told us, man shall not live by bread, physical bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray together.
Our God, we thank you for your word, for providing us with the food of your word. We thank you for calling us in your word to bear with each other, not to please ourselves, but to please each other for each, for each other's good. Like Christ, we thank you that you also empower us by your word for what you call us to by your word. Please feed our souls what they most need each day. And may we live every day by every word that comes from your mouth. May we do it all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.